Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Edgar Mitchell was on his way back to Earth from the moon, taking in the view, when he felt that feeling for the first time. Well, there is all of us. Um had the experience. Let's call it the overview effect or the big picture effect of seeing Earth in a, its ascetic as opposed to the end-all and be-all of living systems. I'm Alex Pasternak, and on this episode of Radio Motherboard, we'll listen to a bit of a conversation that I and producer Kelly Loudenberg had with astronaut Edgar Mitchell in 2012. In February, he passed away at the age of 85, leaving behind an extraordinary legacy. Trained as a military test pilot, Mitchell received his Ph.D. in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT. And in February 1971, he became the sixth man on the moon, one of just 12 in total. The experience, he said, turned him and other astronauts from technicians into humanitarians. But Mitchell's transformation wasn't typical. His time in outer space led him to pursue the world of inner space. In 1973, he set up the Institute of Noetic Sciences, dedicated to understanding consciousness. Later on, he pursued aliens. He hadn't seen one, but he suspected that ETs had come to Earth and that governments were keeping that secret. But all of this might never have happened if it hadn't been for the flying object that suddenly landed just outside his house when he was four years old. My father was sharecropping uh, a farm that belonged to a member of the family while we recovered our equilibrium from the crash, total financial crash of the 1930s. And we were sharecropping a farm uh, near Blackwell, Texas, and one day a barnstormer flew over, landed in our field, because he ran out of gas. And my father, my father helped him go into Blackwell, Texas, and get some gasoline for his airplane. And in appreciation, he gave us one ride or turn around the field. And uh, so that kind of whetted my appetite for flying when I was four years old. But. Uh, I did start flying when I was 13 uh, by washing airplanes at the local local airport to earn flying time. So I had washed enough airplanes that I had uh, earned, that I had my pilot's license before I went off to college at uh, seven, 18. And uh, had a, I had a pilot's license then. But that was, you know, that was fun and games. So when I graduated from college in Carnegie Tech in 1952, the uh, Korean War was on, the draft was on, and I was about to be drafted. But uh, I said, no, I don't want to serve in the Army if I'm going to fly. I mean, if I'm going to serve my country, I'll be glad to, but I want to fly. 
However, I had just married my uh, uh, college sweetheart, my first wife, and uh, neither the Air Force nor the Navy took married men into their uh, cadet flight program. So the only way I could, uh, since I didn't know that at the time, the only way I could get around this limitation, I enlisted in the Navy. I, became, I went to boot camp at San Diego as a seaman. Then I was sent to officer school in Newport, Rhode Island, commissioned as an ensign. Then I applied for flight school mm -hmm. with the Navy in Pensacola, was accepted there. And uh, then I got my Navy wings from Pensacola in uh, 1953. I then went off to, went off to the war, and, uh, but the war was about over by that time. But I was aboard a Navy aircraft carrier in 1957, the USS Ticonderoga coming back from, from uh, the Pacific on October the 4th, 1957, when Sputnik went up. And I realized at that point that uh, a, a new path of human history had just opened up. And I decided I want to be a part of it. And I was on my way back to test pilot duty at China Lake, California, for the Navy. And uh, the first astronauts were just being selected at that point. However, I, they were a few years, Alan Shepard and that group were about four years older than me and, and they had a couple more years of test pilot experience. Mm -hmm. And so in order to compete and catch up, I, uh, after I did a couple of years of test pilot experience and with the Navy, um, I made my, was able to go back to school, went back to Naval Postgraduate School, and then on to MIT, got my doctorate at MIT at the beginning of space studies there, and uh, then was selected into the Apollo program in 1966. Uh, the rest is kind of, so it's kind of a circuitous route to get there that really wasn't planned out, it just happened that way. Kennedy announced the program of, uh, of going to the moon. Um, I was all for that, and that was, I was already at MIT doing my doctoral work when he made that announcement about going to the moon. And so, and I was already planning on trying to be in the space program. And my uh, doctoral thesis at MIT was built around a, a, a mission to Mars. That was what I wrote about, and that was over 50 years ago now. Uh, aircraft to Mars with uh, an electric propulsion, electric propulsion system. It was, it was in the literature, it was uh, speculation about space flights. Uh, and of course, Werner von Braun and his team were very involved in spaceflight at that point in time. And some of his team were my mentors on uh, electric propulsion. That had been studied by some of his team members. Well, it's nuclear propulsion, but, but the low thrust interplanetary navigation is what it was called. Buck Rogers, the comic strip, was in the, in the 1930s and 40s, was a prominent comic strip, and all of us read Buck Rogers, even though that was far, far future. And But it was only when uh, Sputnik went up, and at that point, <clears throat> President Eisenhower created NASA from the National Aeronautics Committee, the NAC. NASA also, at that point, once it was created, as major technical schools like MIT, Caltech, and Princeton to instigate uh, 
graduate programs because nobody knew what space was about. As I say to my lectures quite often, our uh, common knowledge was of, of space was God in the heavens, man in the middle, and everything else below. That was really all we really knew from cosmology. And so these MIT, Caltech, and Princeton, plus then others, uh, started offering graduate programs in astronomy and uh, cosmology and such sub subject matter to start to bring the public knowledge on what is space all about. And I've been fortunate enough to be in about the second year that that program was offered at MIT. And I studied both at MIT and Harvard while I was getting my doctorate. On January 31st, 1971, Mitchell and his crewmates, Stuart Rusa and Alan Shepard, would be strapped into the top of a Saturn V rocket, the biggest ever built. Launch commit, liftoff. We have liftoff with Apollo 14, three minutes past the hour. The tower is clear. It was get the job done. I mean, we're test pilots. You, uh, we had practiced what we had to do. We knew the spacecraft like the back of our hand. Uh, we were test pilots testing a, a vehicle. So that's what was on your mind, do the job. We were pretty confident, as a matter of fact. We knew our business and uh, knew the spacecraft. Of course, Apollo 13 didn't work out so well. Mm -hmm. But Apollo 13 was our original flight. But uh, we'd shifted with Jim Lovell team because Alan Shepard had come on the crew and headquarters thought he needed more travel, more training time uh, because he'd been grounded for a number of years. But they got the bad machine, we got a good machine and we helped bring them home, Ken Mattingly and I. And if you remember the story, Ken Mattingly was on Apollo 13 as a command module pilot and got bumped because he had ex been exposed to the measles of one of the astronauts' kids. So that left Ken and myself as the two senior lunar module and command module pilots on the ground at the Pine for the Apollo 13 mission. So we spent all of our time in simulators trying to do uh, what they had to do before they had to do it to get, to get the Apollo 13 mission back home safely. I asked Mitchell, what was he thinking about during his three-day trip out to the moon? We're pretty well trained at that point. We had a checklist and uh, we're prepared to enter lunar orbit. Now, of course, going out, there was a couple of days of not very heavy activity, but uh, then it picked up quite a bit as we got closer to the moon. But their ride wasn't easy either. Mitchell was piloting the lunar module, the spacecraft meant to land on the moon, when an abort light suddenly came on. That wasn't something that he or his crewmates expected. If that happened during lunar descent, the whole mission would be over, or worse. The team at Mission Control had two hours, the time of one orbit, to solve the problem. Well, we had a couple of failures of our equipment when the abort light came on right over the landing site on the last pass around the moon. We had to go back to MIT to the programmer that had programmed that into it. Houston quickly reached the programmer up at MIT in Cambridge, who had programmed the lunar module guidance computer, a young guy named Donald Isles. He quickly wrote up some code that instructed the computer to ignore the false signal. That was run through a simulator back at NASA, 
and with about a minute to spare, Mitchell punched in the lines of code, some 80 keystrokes. And he uh, found a way to disable that circuit for us. Well, we just disabled it. And then they set up the commands to the command module, rather to the primary navigation system, to ignore that signal. So, and then, then I, had, I had to reprogram the abort guidance system to ignore the signal. So that was, we, we worked around that one. And then, of course, the result of that was that the radar system, the radar failed. Yep, another problem. Just minutes before landing, the landing radar stopped working. A quick decision by mission control to cycle the circuit breaker fixed the problem. We solved that thanks to, to people on the ground by just recycling the circuit breaker and recycling the switch, and that made it work. But those are pretty significant failures to put good training and people knowing the system well. We've worked around those. You can hear Mitchell describing the descent on the recording. Mitchell and Alan Shepard made the third human moon landing on February 5th, 1971. As Rusa orbited above in the command module, the two astronauts set up a small laboratory of experimental equipment for conducting the first science on the moon, and they explored the surface. They took photos, collected rocks, 95 pounds of lunar rocks. They described everything they saw. For nine hours over the course of two moonwalks, the two astronauts walked farther on the moon than any other humans have. Later, astronauts would have a car, the lunar rover. At one point, they took time out for sports. Mitchell threw a shovel like a javelin. And Shepard, who had brought his six iron, hit a few golf balls. He said the second one went miles and miles in the low lunar gravity. But NASA later estimated it probably went no farther than 370 meters. Still, they had a lot of work to do and were working against the clock and the drain of oxygen in their tanks, leaving them little time to take it all in. We had a job to do, and we had a checklist on one wrist and a watch on the other. And uh, we were constantly up against timeline to keep moving because we had no slack in the timeline. And the Capcom was reminding us uh, we were two minutes behind or one minute behind or three minutes behind or whatever it was. Uh, and so the job was to keep going. But of course, we had to acclimatize ourselves to the surface 
and being one-six gravity on the surface, that meant you were lighter than you were on Earth. However, because of the pressure suit and the uh, PLS, the life support system, you actually on Earth weight were well over 470 pounds, but on moon weight, that was one-sixth of that. So you were cumbered, encumbered by the pressure suit, and the, but you were freed up by the reduced gravity. And walking on the surface of the moon is like walking on a trampoline. You can take a little bounce to your step, but nevertheless, you're pressured with all the pressure equipment on you and the task of uh, following the checklist and getting everything to, since we'd practiced everything, however, uh, there wasn't any great surprises as long as things were working the way we practiced them, and they did. But of course, you stole a moment now and looked around and gasped at the magnificence of it all, then back to work again. It just wasn't time to really sit and enjoy the scenery. To lighten their weight as they made their return to Earth, a number of objects were meant to be left behind on the moon. But before leaving, Mitchell grabbed two of them the hand controller that he used to land the module, and the 16-millimeter camera that filmed the last few minutes of their landing. That camera, Maurer camera, actually mounted on a bracket like that in the window of the spacecraft. And uh, my job was to take the uh, cassette out of the camera and bring that back, but we ran out of time. And Alan said, grab the camera, don't worry about it. Could've took, it took longer to get the cassette out of it than it did just to grab, a cam- grab the camera. So I grabbed the camera and brought it home along with the cassette. And you may not remember or know, but uh, we were the f- last crew to have post-flight quarantine uh, because there were no bugs on the moon. So when I came out of quarantine three weeks after getting home, that hand controller, which is my hand controller on the surface, and the camera were both on my desk at, uh, in my office uh, as my mementos of our flight. So fine, I had, it, had them both here, still have that for 40 years. Beginning in the early days of NASA, taking home artifacts and souvenirs was customary for astronauts and crew members. A number of these things decorated Mitchell's office. It looked like a small space museum. In 2011, Mitchell put the camera up for auction, along with some other items. This is another custom for the astronauts of the early NASA missions. At auction, items that have gone to space, especially those that have landed on the moon, can reach, well, astronomical prices. Last year, bids for a freeze-dried spaghetti dinner that Alan Bean took to the moon started around $60,000. There's a great Motherboard article about this. Go check it out. But when Mitchell put his camera up for auction, NASA finally decided to put its foot down. The space agency argued the camera actually belonged to the U.S. government, and it filed a lawsuit to get it back. Mitchell became the first and so far only astronaut to be sued by his own government. All of a sudden, 40 years later, some, excuse the language, asshole in in, uh, NASA decides they want some of this stuff back. So they demanded it back, filed a suit, and uh, along with a whole batch of other stuff from other guys that you're aware of. May or may not be a mirror. Oh, yeah. Well, they've gone after Jim Lovell's Apollo 13 checklist. They went after Rusty Schweikert's uh, uh, lunar module, his copy of the lunar module. I have one of my lunar module. 
uh, that was given to him, not by NASA, but by Grumman Aircraft, so government had nothing to do with it. So it's a bunch of rebels at NASA that are just totally messed up about things. And we have, currently we have a bill going through Congress uh, giving us all of this stuff that we were given, already given, but uh, putting it into law. Part of NASA's argument was that Mitchell had no right to the camera because it was never meant to leave the moon in the first place. Mitchell argued that the U.S. government had essentially abandoned the camera on the moon. So basically, finders keepers. Eventually, Mitchell withdrew the camera from auction and agreed to donate it for display at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum in Washington. And even though Mitchell lost his camera, thanks to his and other astronauts' efforts, the following year, 2012, President Obama signed a law passed by Congress confirming full ownership rights of artifacts to the astronauts of the Apollo and Mercury and Gemini missions, which allows them to continue selling these items at auction. During the coast to Earth, there would be time to catch up on sleep, relax, and do all the little things left undone. Taking the camera back home wasn't the only unorthodox thing that Mitchell did on the mission. During the three-day trip back to Earth, he conducted another experiment. This one wasn't on the checklist. After crawling into his sleeping bag each night, he tried to communicate telepathically with people back on Earth, transmitting a randomly ordered series of five predetermined symbols back home using only his mind. The results of the experiment were mixed. It turned out that the timing of his mental transmissions was out of sync with the psychics on Earth. But Mitchell said that the timing didn't matter. Besides, extrasensory perception and so much else about the universe, he felt, wasn't something that science was yet prepared to explain. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was the realization that he had as he looked out the window at Earth, dangling there in space. Well, there is, all of us um, had the experience, let's call it the overview effect or the big picture effect of seeing Earth in a, it's a setting as opposed to the end all and be all of living systems. This space-bound epiphany, this feeling may be hard to imagine for those of us who are Earth-bound, but it's not surprising if you think about it. As writer Dave Simpson wrote at Motherboard recently, Many astronauts have described the sheer awe of staring down at Earth from space, the feeling of the sublime that minimizes one's sense of self in the face of something bigger and older than anything you know, and perhaps the feeling that this thing, nature, the universe, that we're just scratching the surface of it, that most of the time it's barely seen, much less understood. In science, consciousness, 
the question of why are we conscious at all has been a no-no for 400 years, since the time of the Cartesian duality, when Rene Descartes wrote the paper in the 1600s that body-mind, body-mind, physicality, spirituality were different realms of reality that didn't interact. And of course, we now know Descartes was wrong. That is not correct. And that much of what we call consciousness, or all of what we call consciousness, is rooted in the quantum properties of nature. And uh, several things to cite to uh, illustrate that. We call in the English language intuition our sixth sense. It should be our first sense because it's rooted in the quantum world, which was around long before the rest of it was around, before the atmosphere that, to which sound uh, translates, and uh, our solar system was around, that the quantum world is, is, more, is more fundamental and preliminary. And we're just now, in the, throughout the 20th and into the 20th century, just starting to learn that. And the fact that we are conscious and that our consciousness is a quantum phenomenon is just now being learned. Roger Penrose and, and Stuart Hamroff have written stuff about uh, the brain, and both of whom I know, and I don't think they have quite the right answer, but it's, it's part of the right answer. Not long ago, the study of consciousness was considered to be too abstract and subjective to be a focus of major scientific study. The domain instead of philosophers and metaphysicians and mystics the theory he's referring to, developed by the renowned theoretical physicist Roger Penrose and Stuart Hemroth, argues that if physics can develop a theory of everything to explain the universe, it must also attempt to account for human consciousness. And that, he says, requires understanding the brain at a quantum level, where, by the laws of quantum mechanics, matter can behave very strangely. I established my Institute of Noetic Sciences, which is now almost 40 years old, and has done quite a significant job of, uh, of bringing the idea of consciousness into science, which it wasn't before, but taking the notion that parapsychology isn't para, it's very normal stuff, that that's the inner skills, the inner resources that uh, we humans have. And that's a part of science, scientific discovery is all of these properties that uh, we didn't know about. They were mystical in the past. We're now making them fairly known. And I had seen evidence that uh, mind over matter uh, and psychokinetic effects and psychic effects do take place and had been studied and that clearly was something that the Cartesian duality said didn't exist, and clearly it did exist. So my first studies when I came back from the moon got introduced to Uri Geller, was to take that into the laboratory and study it carefully. And of course, it's real stuff. Uri Geller and many, many, many other people can do mind over matter effects, psychokinesis it's called, influencing matter with mind, and uh, he was an expert at it. Uh, we still don't have all the answers to our cosmology. We don't have all the answers to how all of this evolved. We don't really have the fundamental answers in that. How did it come about? The nature of evolution, what we have improved in evolution is we now understand that Lamarck was right in 1809 and not Darwin 50 years later when Lamarck said it's a learning process, that evolution is a learning process. And uh, we have all sorts of evidence for that. Go down and, uh, and we have a, the mechanism, it's called a quantum hologram. Uh, if we go down and look at the deep Marianas Trench at the 
life forms, right, that evolved close to the center of the earth. They're quite different from the life forms in shallow water as opposed to life forms in the deep water that it learned to adapt to quite a different living system. And that's our lesson here, that the quantum hologram is uh, a discovery by a colleague of mine called Dr. Walter, named Dr. Walter Shimp, a descendant of Kepler, by the way, that shows the ancient concept of the Akashic Record. The ancients thought that nature didn't lose its experience. The quantum hologram is a mechanism that shows that to be true. This idea of the quantum hologram, it's a bit elusive, but I think it goes something like this. All physical experiences in the universe are reflected in this invisible quantum record that transcends time and space. That's the hologram, what Mitchell also referred to as the giant hard disk in the sky. We've been pretty primitive, and our civilization, as we know it, really only goes back a few hundred years. If we go back a few thousand years, it's pretty primitive. And uh, we look at the evidence for living substance a couple of thousand years ago, and we're we're pretty unknowledgeable primitive animals long before our technologies are, came about. And the technologies like you're using right here is new stuff in the last 50 years or so. so let's hope we're progressing. We don't know for sure that we are, but uh, if we're living longer lives, we're eating better, we're living happier lives uh, and doing better things, let's, let's hope it means progress. Our big problem right now is sustainability. The evidence is that every measure of human activity is exhibiting exponential growth. And it doesn't take genius to understand that exponential growth can't continue indefinitely in a finite space. And Earth is a finite space. So we've got a major problem to solve. We are consuming and growing and eating ourselves out of house and home and destroying the planet while we're doing it. And if we're gonna survive, we can't do that anymore. We've gotta learn how to either go out and get more resources uh, beyond our planet or change our lifestyle so we're not uh, destroying everything we touch. And nature as we've, we know it is being destroyed very rapidly. So you have to learn to balance it, is how do you learn to live sustainably and stop escalating it exponentially every measure of human activity because we're destroying ourselves in that process. If we don't have the ambition to get out there, we're not gonna find the answer to these problems that are killing us. Mitchell wasn't just certain that humans needed to explore the universe. He was certain that extraterrestrials have been doing the same, and they've been visiting the Earth for centuries. His interest in aliens stemmed in part, he said, from time he spent as a kid living in Artesia, New Mexico, just next door to Roswell. Well, I will tell you my experience is that I was getting ready to go off to college when the so-called Roswell incident took place. And on one day, it was in the uh, Roswell Daily Record, which was the preeminent newspaper of the area, that a alien spacecraft had crashed uh, northwest of Roswell. The next day, uh, that story was retracted by the insistence of the Air Force. And uh, no, it was a weather balloon. And uh, I immediately said, okay, if that's a weather balloon, then I'm not concerned about it. So I went off to college and acknowledged it. But after I went to the moon and came back, I did go to Roswell to visit family and friends. And I was invited to talk about going to the moon and so forth. And at that point, the public had been shushed up. The story had been changed. The Air Force or the government 
had put forth at least several cover stories, different cover stories over the years to explain the Roswell incident. If any one of them had been true, that was all that was necessary. But uh, of course, they were simply cover stories. And the original one seems to have been the truth. But anyhow, when I did my talks back there, people would come up to me. Some of them were the descendants of the first generation that were there in Roswell. For example, the Undertakers, one of the descendants of the Undertaker, who provided small coffins for the Air Force to contain the bodies of the aliens. Another was the uh, descendant of a sheriff in the Sheriff's Department who'd helped control traffic out near the Christ side. Another was a military friend of my family, although he wasn't involved in the uh, event, was a, a major in the Air Force uh, at that point. And he told me, he said, yes, it was a true event. So I later took that story to the Pentagon of what happened and uh, indirectly got, got it confirmed. But Vice Admiral that I talked to, the chief of military intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff claimed that he didn't know anything about it, and but he would get back to me on it. He never got back to me on it, but we did encounter him, and some of my friends encountered him in Las Vegas trying to get into the, uh, the secure site, Area 51. And he was denied access, just like um, President Clinton's emissary was denied access to Wright-Patterson as not having a need to know. So. This is telling us something that is really not military alone. It's what I consider a military-industrial cabal that President Eisenhower warned us about. Beware of the military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. And uh, whatever of advanced knowledge we have about alien transportation and propulsion systems, it is known by somebody, or at least there's a certain group that seems to have better access to that information that is not public. You know, I think somebody in the system does. It is not public knowledge. But I am also very knowledgeable in many of the uh, people in the forefront of the research and who have been in the, in the military industrial complex for years and some who claim to, to say, yes, we do have that knowledge, but it's not in public domain. I do not know the answer to that for sure, whether we know it or not. I couldn't verify any of what Mitchell told me about UFOs or aliens or his government source at the Pentagon. But while he may be remembered as one of America's most prominent alien believers, he's not alone. According to a recent poll by YouGov, about half of Americans believe in UFOs, and a third think the government has covered up their visits to Earth. Lately, Hillary Clinton who says she once aspired to be an astronaut herself, has been drawing support from the alien demographic for her determination to declassify files related to Area 51 and extraterrestrials. I'm serious. I mean, if there's some huge national security thing and I can't get agreement to open them, I won't. But I do want to open them because I'm interested. Do you believe? I don't know. But there are enough stories out there that I don't think... Everybody is just sitting, you know, in their kitchen making them up. I think that people see things. What they see, I don't know. In 1996, after Mitchell began talking about UFOs, a spokesperson for NASA released a statement. It read, NASA does not track UFOs. NASA is not involved in any sort of cover-up about alien life on this planet or anywhere in the universe. Dr. Mitchell is a great American but we do not share his opinions on this issue. Mitchell was quick to point out that he himself had never seen anything. 
And as I pointed out, there still hadn't been any physical evidence of aliens on Earth. But the astronauts like Gordon Cooper, who have been involved, and other military people who have been uh, military fighter pilots who have been vectored to chase UFOs, and uh, not successfully yet, but there are pilots, and virtually all many airline pilots and military pilots have encountered UFOs in space. Whenever they've talked about it, they've been summarily hushed up debriefed and told to be quiet. Until the point uh, several years ago, I mean, this went on for years, military people just quit reporting it because it was too, too, too much of a hassle for them to, to bother. Well, the minute the so-called men in black descend on them and say, shut up, you're not gonna talk about it. Not strong physical evidence. However, there are a lot of very, very good researchers like uh, Stanton Friedman, for example, like Nick Pope in, in uh, England, uh, quite a few others, that uh, very respectable scientists and have done their homework well. And, but uh, say the evidence is overwhelmingly strong. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that. Well, I think we ha have to be prepared right now because they're here, in my opinion, and have been for a long, long time. But Mitchell didn't think that aliens were dangerous per se. One theory he had was that the Roswell crash, not far from where the U.S. tested its first nuclear weapons, was an attempt by aliens to warn us, to prevent the development of humanity's deadliest technology. Whether he was right or not about this and some of his other theories, I'm not sure. But I admire the spirit of Mitchell's thought that we have a lot of exploring left to do and that we won't be able to do it if we aren't willing to consider new and controversial ideas. That's, after all, how knowledge is gained how science works, how technology is built. But, and this was his other idea, we need to be very careful, a notion gained from seeing the fragile Earth in the middle of space. We have to be very careful about how we do all those things. Well, I would hope and suspect that we cannot continue to be warlike, and so we can reasonably ask the questions, how long will we go along killing each other who's whose God is the best God, the argument of whose God is the best God, over border disputes and over these things that we go to war over and kill each other for such, such issues. To me, that's nonsense. It's not the way civilization need be, should be, and we have to grow up. And let's, let's hope that that is exactly what the uh, ETs, extraterrestrials, are trying to show us is that we don't need to be this warlike uh, civilization here. But on the contrary, we learned, need to learn to be a cooperative civilization working together to solve our survival problems and our sustainability problems. Because right now, civilization as we, are, we live it is not sustainable. That we're using up our resources at an alarming rate. And uh, it's a question whether we can make it through this century or not, uh, the way we're doing things right now. Thanks for listening, and thanks to our editor, Mark Liam Bruni, for putting this show together. You can find more stories about the natural and supernatural worlds on Motherboard, and subscribe to our podcast, too. We recently did another episode about aliens. I'm Alex Pasternak, and I'll see you in space. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.